Welcome to the Big Hairy Podcast by clean beauty brand The Beauty Works, the podcast that explores hair and the meaningful ways it's linked to identity, culture, ethnicity and gender. I'm Sarah Kaywood and today I'll be joined by Angela Cobbin, a legendary wig designer and hairdresser who's worked with some of the biggest names in showbiz and has recently released her memoir, My Name Is Not Wigs. But it was wonderful working in this little boutique. It was just wigs and giggles for the hair, you know, that kind of thing. There were times when it was a bit quiet and I was browsing around the back of the shop and I found this old book and there was a wonderful, wonderful picture of uh, an 18th century hairstyle which was obviously a wig. Mm-hmm. I just knew that's what I wanted to do. We'll be talking celebrity wigs. Dame Judy, is she as fabulous as she seems? Absolutely. She's very naughty. She's very funny. She's so good to work with. Wigs in theatre. I was thinking too with the musicals because of the microphones. Sometimes we had to put microphones inside the wigs. And when wigging goes horribly wrong. I'm very honest in my book about the things I don't get right. This is an episode you won't want to miss. Now let's meet the wonderful Angela. Thank you, Angela, so much for joining us. I know I shouldn't have favourites, but I'm really excited about this episode of the Big Hairy Podcast. Because, well, for starters, obviously we'll talk more in depth about this, but your background is in wigs for mainly the stage. You know, I have a stage background myself for many, many moons ago. So, yeah, I mean, wigs and makeup were always where all the gossip happened. (laughs) Seriously, so I'm expecting some juicy nuggets from you. (laughs) Well, I'll do my best, but, you know, trying to remember all those sort of nuggets of gossip is quite tricky. (laughs) That's all right. We'll tease them out of you. So, as Julie Andrews would say, let's start at the very beginning, because your parents were in show business, weren't they? Can you tell us a bit about what they did and how you came to be in wigs? Well, my father was a dancer and what they call an adagio dancer. Mm -hmm. And he had a troupe. There were six of them sometimes, sometimes only four, depending. And they used to throw two girls about. It was quite an extraordinary thing. You know, these girls would cross over in midair and then two chaps would catch them and they'd do all sorts of things like that. My mother was a dancer as well. She was a ballroom dancer. She joined the ATS during the war, World War II, And I remember her telling me the story that she had to do a tap dance in her hobnail boots because there wasn't any time to change. So it was a bit of an audition, that. But she passed, which, Mm -hmm. (laughs) of course, she did. But then variety, I suppose that's what it was in those days, variety, these sort of acts that they did. And uh, they did work together in pantomime. And uh, I think eventually they had to give it up because my father got older anyway. And they had to think about us, the kids, Mm-hmm. And so having given it up, they didn't want us to have anything to do with the theatre. They didn't feel that that was the right way to go. We wouldn't have good careers at all in the theatre. So we were sort of told we were going to have to have sensible jobs. I mean, obviously, I myself came from a dancing and a theatre background. And you do spend these large periods of time out of work. And when you've got a family, I was single. But when you've got family, you want to be secure for them. It's that age old thing of telling your kids when they want to be rock stars or comedians or whatever, have a backup plan. Yeah. So they wanted you to have something solid that you could rely on making a living out of. Yeah, that's correct. But I wanted to be an artist. So that was no good either. 
That's even worse than dancing, Angela. <laughs> so how did you end up going into wigs then? Well, not wigs, but hairdressing. My parents thought that was, you know, equivalent to being an artist. But I, I had no interest in hair whatsoever. But they decided I would do a hairdressing apprenticeship. I left school at 15. I went to work for a very nice chap who was brilliant. He was brilliant. And I was all fingers and thumbs to begin with. Mm -hmm. But now, well, I seem to have earned my stripes. <laughs> I mm -hmm. seem to be okay. You know, I did this three-year apprenticeship, which was fine. And it was all the Del Sassoon haircuts and things like that. It was wonderful. Amazing. And then I, I sort of had enough of the hairdressing salon, you know, where are you going for your holes, mm -hmm. all that sort of thing. And I went to work in a little wig boutique in Brighton. Can I ask what year was this? Because obviously I think a wig boutique, can, if it's in the 60s or 70s, must have been the best place ever because they were so fashionable at the time. Oh, they were wonderful. Even in Brighton, they were wonderful. And there were yeah. modern wigs in there. So I'd sort of mm. you know, just moved from hairdressing and doing modern wigs and... Do you remember a singer called Susan Maugham? No, I've drawn a blank. No, I can't say I do. So when was this? The 60s? It's the late 60s, yeah. Early 70s. So I sold her a couple of wigs, which was pretty good. Mm -hmm. But it was wonderful working in this little boutique. It was just wigs and giggles for the hair, you know, that kind of thing. There were times when it was a bit quiet and I was browsing around the back of the shop and there, I found this old book and there was a wonderful, wonderful picture of uh, an 18th century hairstyle which was obviously a wig mm -hmm. I just knew that's what I wanted to do I mean I find wig making for character particularly fascinating because when I was in Phantom of the Opera when I used to put my long Degas style wig on and I know that you did that we talked about this earlier you did the touring version so you know exactly which wig I'm talking about but it very much helped me become a Degar ballet girl, like the ones that they wanted in Phantom of the Opera. Why do you think that is? I mean, it must really help, especially like real character actors, get into character. Why do you think that is? It's just a piece of hair. I think it's all part of it, isn't it? Because you've got the costume as well. Mm. You will have had the ballet pumps on. and Yeah. Gradually it's coming to you, you know, and then once you put the wig on, you've got all that lovely long flowing hair, or in fact it's back in a lovely chignon or something like that. You then become that kind of... I couldn't tell you because I'm not a performer, <laughs> but I, having seen actors getting ready, it's all part of that process of warming up into the role. It's very important. Would you often see when you put the wig on somebody, oh. would you almost see their transformation happening, like in front of you? Yes. Oh, that's amazing. And in fact, very often <laughs> when you dressed wigs, you know, for, for various people in play, especially in the theatre, they're all sitting on the blocks. You know exactly, you can see the person under each wig. Mm -hmm. So they do take on <laughs> their persona. It's quite extraordinary. But every wig that an artist wears must really do them a favour, I think. Mm -hmm. You have to make sure it makes them look and feel right, mm -hmm. feel good. Mm -hmm. Must suit them. That's what I mean. Yes. And I used to be told I had a good eye for that. And that's probably what set you apart from other wig makers. Because I just think you probably had the X factor of wiggies. <laughs> the X factor. <laughs> How do you design a wig for a stage character? Were you part of the design process or were you just part of the creative making it process? Did you ever have to design them? 
I did, I suppose. It's all it's all teamwork, really. Mm. You know, if you've got a designer who's got a particular idea, but mm-hmm. then you add to it. Other times I have, yes, I've had particular ideas and I've said, look, I think it would be better like this. Mm-hmm. You know, and then once you see it out on the stage, you see how it works. You see how well it works. Are there sort of reference points that always work? Are there rules to abide by? For instance, you know, blondes are generally good and brunettes are generally evil, thinking the evil queen and all that. I mean, do you adhere to that or do you not? Do you not subscribe to that at all? Is that too basic? It's a, there's an element of that, but I try and make characters real. I mean, I suppose in Mary Poppins, the nasty nanny, we did make her look a bit evil, I suppose, you know, with the white streak at the side. and Yeah. You know, just gave her a very hard look. So she looked very stern, very hard. Angela, you just plonked that in on Mary Poppins. So you worked on the original, yes? I did, yes. So when you did the stage show, did you use the film then as reference for the wigs or did you try and do something a bit different? I tried to do something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, it it depends who's playing the role of Mary Poppins. Mm -hmm. You've got to take into consideration, you know, the facial features, the size of the person. The Strallen sisters were very easy to do. And she had to have very dark hair and look very prim and proper. And I think, yes, it was very different to Julie Andrews. Yeah. I built them out more at the side and... Of course, they had this hat all the time that was perched on top. It's the wig person's nightmare, the hat. (laughs) Why is that? Well, because the hats come on and off and on and off and on and off. And so they wreck the hairstyle. And if you're doing a film, that's very easy because they just cut and then everybody rushes in, tidies everybody up. But you can't do that on the stage. Oh, my worst nightmare would be losing your wig, starting to feel it go loose and you're like, ah, I can't lose my wig on stage. That's why they're on very, very firmly. So mm-hmm. apart from the spirit gum and everything else, they're pinned on so firmly. Lots of padding in the wigs to make sure that the star retains its look. Oh, it's so clever. It's got to be two and a half hours sweat proof, hasn't it, as well? Absolutely. I suppose. Yeah. Have you worked in film or only the stage? No, I have worked in film, usually doing what they call dailies. And what's that? Well, you're doing all the ensemble or the extras. I have achieved a film on my own. It was a small film mm-hmm. by Anand Tucker, who was the director. It was with Miranda Richardson. Saint X, it was called. Lovely film to do because it was all 1930s, but not a big box office hit, you know, that kind of thing. Unless it's in the theatre, I don't do big box office hits. (laughs) They're all little, you know, small numbers. But working on films is so different. And I don't know what it is about it. I don't enjoy it as much. It's a lot of hanging about. I never felt connected with most of those films. You're just there, you know, you do your job and go home and it's a very long day you know it could be setting out from home at four in the morning and not get home till 10 or 11 at night yeah I hear all of that I had a cameo part in Velvet Goldmine many years ago in 1996 and it was um Sandy I can't remember Sandy's surname and Peter King they were in charge of makeup and they're both Oscar winners but makeup and hair was where all the proper gossip was 
I never really wanted to stay in there very long because you had you and McGregor and Tony Collette in there and just sort of I would walk in and everybody would stop talking and you'd be like, oh, what the hell are they talking about? It probably happens more on film sets than it does in the theatre. There's something about you guys in hair and makeup and wigs that is so easy to confide in. Why do you think that is? <laughs> I can only go back to my hairdressing days. Clients always talk to their hairdresser. You know, they go in one ear and I let them go out of the other ear. But in the theatre, I've always considered the dressing room a bit like the confessional box. So whatever they say to you in confidence, usually it's in confidence. I'm not somebody, (laughs) I know that seems quite peculiar, but I won't repeat it. But there is a lot of gossip around, I suspect. And the other thing is, is it's very true to say that if you want to know anything in advance, ask the wig and makeup department. And that's very true. We've got our ear to the ground, so to speak. Yeah, I just think it's amazing. So let's just go back to basics. What sort of process goes into making a wig? How do you do it? I wouldn't have a Scoobies. <laughs> well, originally it was all done by measurements, you know, using a tape measure. Um, but right, OK. I'm happy to tell you that it changed I don't know, I suppose during the 90s. And what happened was you can actually make a very good head shape using cling film and sellotape. So you get a really exact copy of the person's head. How do you do that? So cling film over. Yes, and then you you wind it here very firmly so it stays close to the head and then you just sellotape completely all over. And then you just draw around where the hairline is, right round. And then when you remove that... You then get a a wig block that's the right size and you fit it onto a wig block and then you can start making it your foundation from that. Much lengthier process when you just did it with tape measure measurements. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, the 90s is quite late for cling film. We had cling film back in the 60s, didn't we? I wonder if now, can they not use something like electronic? You would have thought it would have gone electronic by now, wouldn't you? And you sit under like one of those old-fashioned hair dryer style things. I don't know about that. I believe in Japan they can do this uh, template and it just sort of sloops it up. But I th- imagine the equipment you'd have to carry if you were going round. Oh, God, yeah, of course. I hadn't thought of that. You know, I've had to go to all sorts of places to do wig fittings. I've been in cupboards before, you know, at the back of a rehearsal room. Quite tricky, but you can still get it done. So you couldn't carry around a bit of equipment. No, cling film and sellotape it is then. So if you're going to do like an 18th century, like you were talking about when you first saw that picture in that book. Yes. Do you just have a basic wig, which you then make into the hairstyle? Or do you make it straight into the hairstyle? No, it's not a basic wig. I use yak hair tail yak or underbelly of yak, depending how sturdy I want it to be. And then you build the foundation a little bit stronger. I usually run some support wires through it. Then it has to have a frame on it to sit around on the top. And then you put lace around that and then weave some hair. And then that's wrapped around that lace. And then it's all set. It's a big job. Um, So if I may, I would love to encourage you to name drop for me. (laughs) So can you tell me some of the wonderful thespians you've worked with, what they were like to work with, what you worked with them on? This is what we want to hear about, the juice. Well, I know that you've already mentioned, we mentioned earlier, Judy Dent. She's great fun to work with. Terrific. 
Yeah, we mentioned her, unfortunately, off the podcast. So we'll revisit that. So Dame Judy, is she as fabulous as she seems? Absolutely. She's very naughty. She's very funny. And she's truly, truly Mm -hmm. professional. She's so good to work with. She'll just accept. There's no worries with her whatsoever. She's brilliant. So speaking of her being very easy to work with, you don't obviously have to name names, but presumably... You've worked with, you know, those actors that are sort of, I guess, a bit vain. So even though perhaps they're playing an ugly character, they want to look like the pretty version of the ugly character. Have you ever been up against that where you're trying to desperately get somebody to look perfectly for the part and they've kicked back against that because perhaps they haven't looked like their best selves? Well, I can't say that I have. No, I think most actors are very, very good when it comes to playing the part. They've got to get into it. They've got to look right. Yeah, they're pretty good. I know you'd probably like me to say no. No, it's surprising to hear, but it reaffirms my faith in the craft of acting. And also, we're going to have to revisit Joan Collins because we talked about her before we started recording as well. And what you told me was wonderful. So when did you work with Dame Joan? She was doing a film called The Clandestine Marriage, which, again, wasn't a big box office success. And I was making her wigs for this particular film. I had to go to her own apartment in London to do the wig fitting. And she was very, very pleasant and very... She wanted to know if I knew my craft. That was what was interesting, too. Uh, She grilled me, really, on period wigs. Did I know my history of wigs also? Unfortunately, I did. And then she said to me, well, we'd better do the fitting. But I I warn you now, I've got a very short attention span. So I thought I was a bit up against it. I felt I needed some fast music playing in order to make me move quickly. And we got through it all right. That was absolutely fine. But she surprised me eventually. She said to me, you must make sure you get a credit on the film. Just make sure you do. And that surprised me. I thought that was really good of her to say that to me. And did you get a credit? I did. What's lovely about it is the last one up, Miss Stone Collins wigs by yours truly. (gasps) I love it! I said, wow, look, there it is. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) That's fantastic. Because doesn't Joan Collins wear a lot of wigs anyway? I mean, I've heard that she only ever wears wigs and we've never really seen her with her own hair. Not in the last 30 years, for sure. Well, probably not now. But she has used her own hair, but she does, I think, prefer to wear wigs. But they're all what I call big wigs, you know. You can see that they look very glamorous always. Yes, she likes those. My grandmother, actually, she used to wear wigs a lot. I guess they're very expensive, but I'm all in favour of bringing back wig wearing just for fun. I guess it is just because they're so expensive, the really good ones that people don't wear them. But I think, you know, Joan Collins is very much a a bit of me when it comes to that. I want to be like an 80-year-old Joan Collins when I'm 80. Wigs, high heels, bossing it. (laughs) Yeah, why not? Why not? I've only worn a wig once, you know, a modern wig stretch pull-on wig uh, it was to go to a Vickers and Tots party <laughs> I love it <laughs> when was this this must have been in the 80s Angela no it was a bit early it was in the 70s 
In fact, and I borrowed this wig from somebody else. I said, oh, well, I better go as a tar, you know. And uh, do you know what? Fun as it was, at the end of the day, I had a terrible headache from wearing it. They're really annoying, aren't they? They're hefty. They're quite hefty, the modern wigs. Whereas the wigs that we make, especially for film and theatre, they're so lightweight, you shouldn't know you've got it on your head. Yeah. Did you do wigs for Spitting Image? I did, the original one, yes. Well, that was the best. It was brilliant. It was such fun. I'm trying to think if there was any real hair. I guess there was, wasn't there? Maggie Thatcher's hair was rubber, wasn't it? Yes, Hazeltine. Oh, there were quite a few that were real hair. I did a lot of real hair. There was Prince Charles, the Queen, Prince Philip. They were all real hair, yeah. And did you do Dennis Lawson's eyebrows? Oh, yes, all that sort of thing. It's amazing. It was a great time. It was a huge hit. I had these puppet heads used to be delivered to me here. (laughs) And I didn't have any space then, really. I was still working at the National Theatre. So I had a lot of these heads poking through the banisters, you know, when I'd finished doing. (laughs) It was extraordinary. That must have been absolutely terrifying. (laughs) Well, they weren't terrified, but they were big. Because I found them, maybe it's my age, but I found them quite scary because I was obviously a kid in the age, well, a young teenager. They're scary, those spitting image puppets. I wouldn't have them alone in my house with me. So on my little biography, I just want to go over this. The last line says, working alongside many of the biggest names in acting, including Joan Collins, Celia Imry, Judy Dench and Ian McKellen. And I said to you off microphone that I think without a shadow of a doubt, every single one of those people is a national treasure. And you've worked with all of them. <laughs> Bravo, sister. You know, and there's Michael Gambon. So Michael Gambon, he's <gasps> wonderful again, you know. So many, Simon Callow. Fantastic. They've just been very good to work with, yeah. And they've all been lovely. No egos? I don't think they had ego. They've got personalities, of course, but egos? No, I don't think they have egos particularly. That's just incredible to hear. When you've got acting royalty of that calibre, Judy Dench, Ian McKellen, you know, like Michael Gambon, you would expect... The lovey darling, just to be a bit of that, but it's so fabulous to hear that there isn't. Yes, and I think it's because in the art of acting, they're very, very dedicated. It's their life, you know, doing that. And they're perfectionists, you know, which I like, the fact that they are perfectionists. And everything is done really well. That's why you get such faultless performances. They're tremendous. It's a hugely collaborative process, isn't it? Because obviously they're bringing their talent, but I don't really think on the theatre, obviously, I know it is a bit different in film, but they're going to bring that. But without wigs, without makeup, without costume, it just won't come together. As an audience, I think we need the visuals to help us along our way. And so it truly is teamwork. And I'm sure that they appreciate that more than anyone. It is teamwork from mm-hmm. from the beginning to the end, you know, with your directors, your designers, you've got your lighting, sound people. I was thinking too with the musicals because of the microphones, sometimes we had to put microphones inside the wigs. Oh yeah, in Phantom they used to have them just popping out the forehead here so they'd go underneath the wig. They do have that, but we used to have to put the mic pack in the wig. How did you do that? With great difficulty. I used to have to make a a particular slot in the foundation to uh, incorporate the battery. Wow. And that used to sit on the head where 
it wasn't obvious. So perhaps if you had a chignon at the back of the neck, it would be in there. Or if you had quite a nice dressy style with lift. It does make you think that maybe pre-X-ray machines in airports, you would have been a fantastic smuggler. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine all the stuff you got smuggling wigs. <laughs> Why should the celebs have all the glossy, bouncy-haired fun? The Beauty Works wants to put your hair in the spotlight with their trio of vegan-friendly hair masks. The Deep Conditioning Pink Mineral Clay Hair Mask softens and conditions hair from root to tip, leaving it soft, hydrated, moisturised and red carpet ready. Vitamin C and Shea Butter Boosting Hair Scalp Treatment contains a powerful antioxidant to protect hair. The vitamin C assists with stimulating collagen production and the formula helps to absorb minerals for hair growth and increases hair moisture. Hyaluronic Acid Deep Conditioning Hair Treatment strengthens dry and brittle hair. It detangles, decreases and prevents hair breakage, conditions, softens and cares for the scalp. They can't promise Paul Rudd will want to run his fingers through your hair, but it can't hurt to try. To create locks which will be the envy of Tinseltown with their innovative and affordable hair care which is dedicated to clean beauty and high performance, join the Beautyworks revolution by visiting thebeautyworks.co.uk or follow them on Instagram at thebeautyworks. That's the Beautyworks with an X. What's your favourite period to do hair? Like to do wigs, create wigs from? Oh, oh, I'm on the spot now. Yeah, there you go. I suppose I'd have to say it might be 1940s plus mm -hmm. 18th century. I, I love those two periods. They're wonderful. I mean, if you go back to the 60s and the Vidal Sassoon haircuts, they were fantastic. I love doing geometric haircuts yeah. and things like that. Yeah, I love a beehive. My mum used to do my hair because she was a hairdresser in the 60s as well. And she used to back comb the crown for me and all of that. I, and she did teach me how to do it, but I, I, I find it very hard to back comb my hair. But I would love, like, if I had a room full of wigs to choose from and I could just choose one, it would probably be like a beehive or a 60s. There's a real art to back combing. Oh, do tell. Please tell me what it is. Well, if you're doing it on yourself, especially, as we used to do it at school, and you take a layer up like that, just take it in between your fingers, not too thick. Have you got a comb? No, I haven't. I'm going to use my fingers just to... Right, well, remember what I'm telling you. Right. Now, you bring your comb from the top under your fingers up there. Yeah. Right down to the root. Like that. Right to the root. Really firm, yes. And the teeth of the comb must be quite close together. Then you go back up to the top. Yeah. And you come down... And in the end, that piece of hair would just stand up straight like that without you holding it. And then with the last bit? Then you smooth over the front. You smooth it all over without disturbing the back combing too much and get it all together <gasps> at the back into a ponytail. So as soon as we finish this, I'm going downstairs to back comb my hair. <laughs> yes, you better text me and let me know how you get on. I'll send you a picture. And I should know better, really, because I did a show called um, Celebrity Scissorhands years ago with Emma Sams, who was in Dynasty, obviously, with Joan Collins. Yes. And she taught me how to backcomb on Celebrity Scissorhands, but I think I was a bit nervous. I didn't, cause, and she could do some epic backcombing, but it was the, the show of the 80s, wasn't it? So let's talk about My Name Is Not Wigs, the book. 
with a capital T and a capital B, the book. How did it come about and what's in it? And I'm straight off to Amazon after this to buy it. <laughs> oh, how lovely of you. It starts, obviously, with my parents and the whys and why nots, you know, theatre mm-hmm. and progresses through, but not boringly, hopefully, mm-hmm. because it's more like me talking to you now. That's how it is. I sat down and I wrote it as I would speak to you. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of, somebody described it as sitting down with a friend over a cup of coffee and mm-hmm. having a nice chat about life. And it contains all the places I worked in, mm-hmm. which starting with Nathan's, Nathan Wiggs in Drury Lane. Great place to start because I had to get to London to do what I wanted to do, which was to make these wigs. Mm-hmm. And I moved from there to Madame Tussauds, where I was a couple of years there, as you know, doing wax portraits. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I went to the Royal Opera House, quite by chance, because I left Tussauds and I had a bit of a holiday. And uh, they wanted me to go and work at the National Theatre, the new National Theatre. And when I came back from holiday, found that they weren't quite ready mm-hmm. but they said oh they want somebody at the Royal Opera House so I went there I stayed there for about four years and I, when I left there I did go to the National Theatre and I was there for some time and I left the National Theatre and went into working for myself and that's really what the book is about I suppose this complete runs through and working for myself but I've written it in the hopes that I might inspire some younger people who are going into the business mm-hmm. because I write about the great times I had and have working in the theatre and with the people you work alongside. Mm -hmm. And it's all teamwork. And if you love that and you love the whole aspect of it, it's a wonderful way to work because I don't consider it work. It's never been like work to me. I mean, it is hard work sometimes and long hours, but I've, I've always enjoyed it. Yeah. Well, I just think, and if you manage to do something that you enjoy, then you really are blessed. Are you retired, Angela, or not? Well, I suppose I ought to be, but I'm not. I mean, if somebody wanted me to do something, then of course I'd do it. I'd love to be an advisor on one of these films or shows. Is that a thing? Do those people exist so you can move from doing the practical side of it to being more of a consultant role? Well, I think sometimes I have been asked anyway, but in a kind of more private capacity, yeah. you know. But uh, I think that would be a great thing to do, yeah, mm-hmm. to be sitting in as a, an advisor. Because there are important aspects to how people should look. Mm-hmm. I've, I've watched some programmes now. I find it quite difficult, actually, to watch a period programme without mm-hmm. making notes. <laughs> Armchair wig judgment. Love it. <laughs> Did you watch the Downton Abbey? Yes. I watched one or two and then I couldn't watch it anymore. And then that was it. The wig judgment happened and you were like, I'm out. <laughs> yes, it grates. You know, I was wondering how Maggie Smith made, managed to make her hair look so fantastic every time she appeared, you know. Because a maid wouldn't be that good, would they? Yeah. You see, they should have had you consulting on it. This is what you should be doing, consulting across the board. My husband's an edit producer and he gets really cross. Like, he literally cannot watch, like, location, location, location with me because it's certain camera angles and stuff and he'll be like, look at that, that's shoddy. And and it winds me up. I'm just like, I don't care. I don't understand it. It's just like you saying about Downton. It wouldn't have occurred to me... Because I do think that if you come away from that and think, 
wasn't that wonderful wasn't that lovely or a show or a film mm. but then if you saw it done really well looking very natural and as people would have been wouldn't they then you'd you would notice i think the art of doing anything is to make it look natural natural and easy I agree with you. Yeah. I think sometimes television and to a certain degree films as well are scared of not being glamorous. So you'll probably find that the maids and like just to sorry to pick on Downton, but the maids and what have you, they probably always looked quite attractive when in actual fact they really would have been completely makeup free. It was Maggie Smith's hair I was objecting to. It was just so perfect. Yeah. And very often the artists themselves, they just accept what they're put into. Maybe the director wanted it like that, I don't know. But I just used to say, well, she'd have just had a brush through it, you know, and a comb. Yeah. You know, she wouldn't have painted all these tightly set look. This was Maggie Smith's character. She was the dowager, wasn't she? The elderly. Yeah, she was. Sort of matriarch, yeah. I mean, if she, mm. if she watches the Harry podcast, she'll probably be ringing me up. <laughs> What do you mean? Well, have you done Maggie on your travails through the theatre, Angela? I have. We used her own hair Hmm. because she's got a lovely head of hair. She was great. Has she? Yeah, but she had a um, a little bit of a reputation went before Maggie Smith that she was unhappy with anything. You know, things could fly, object, that kind of thing. And I missed a quick change with her. I'm very honest in my book about the things I don't get right. I missed a quick change and it was to do a makeup job on her cheek that looked like a strawberry, a sort of bruise. Yeah. And uh, it was in a, in a play called Coming Into Land. I, oh, I raced to the stage, you know, and I knew I was too late, really. And she was standing in the wings, ready to go on. I went, I'm here, quickly. I had got time to do it, but... If you're just about to go on, it's not a very good idea, I suppose. Yeah. And she hissed at me. She hissed from the wings because she couldn't <laughs> shout anyway because otherwise the audience would hear it. She, she just went, you're too late. <laughs> you know, sort of, and I shriveled up, you know, I thought, oh. And I, I saw her dresser, Ursula, lovely lady. I, I went and saw her and said, what can I expect? <laughs> you know, she said, you'll have to come to her dressing room at the end of the show. And I thought... Is she going to throw something? You know, I was so... Only because I'd heard this reputation, you know, which is silly, really. That's what you shouldn't listen to. Yeah. You see, gossip. I knocked on the door and come in. And as I opened the door, I sort of tentatively ducked down. But in fact, nothing of the sort. She couldn't have been nicer. Oh. And that taught me a lesson. I thought, never listen to gossip. And they're true perfectionists. So they do expect you to be a perfectionist. It's very rare for me to miss something like that. There was a reason why, but it doesn't matter. There's excuses aren't any good. Yeah. Oh, I'm so pleased that she didn't like unleash hell on you. (laughs) Although that would have been a great story too, because you sort of expect that from Dame Maggie, don't you? Yes. I've worked with Joan Plowright as well. And she, she again was, you know, one of those, you're kind of slightly in awe of her because she's a well-known artist. And, uh, she was very gracious, but I always had to make sure the hairstyle was absolutely right. And she nearly always has this very, what I call, full hairdressed look on the front here with curls. Yeah. As long as she has that, she's very happy. You, know, you find out in the end their little isms and osities and you can cope. Isms and osities. <laughs> I love that. 
you just get on with it and do it. And I mean, yeah, I had a lovely time with Patricia Routledge because she was in Carousel and um, she had this very nice natural hairdo up in a chignon and all that sort of thing. And she used to like to put a wig on herself. You took it to the dressing room and then she put it on herself and then you went in, fixed it down. And one day I got called in the middle of putting somebody else's wig on, her dresser came and said, you know, just come and see her, just come and see her. Wig's in a terrible mess. Mm -hmm. So I went in and thought, okay, what am I going to get here? And I went in and she said, look at my wig. Look at the state it came to my dressing room. And I was so shocked that she'd said that, you know, because everything went down, all beautifully dressed, always. But that's where you have to make the decision. She's going to go on and perform in a minute. I can't say anything. You can't fight your corner at that point. You can't go, well, we always send them down perfect. So I just said, right, right, okay. I looked at it and you probably know yourself if you've had your hair dressed up and you just get a pair that's come out, a few hairs, and you can't, whatever you do, you can't put them back in. And they, Well, this was like this, only in lots of places. And I thought, oh, my God, Mm. what shall I do? Okay. I just said to her, okay, well, I just want you to hold on to the sides very tightly. She said, I'm on stage in a minute. I'm on stage. And I've got, it's perfectly right. Just hold on (laughs) really tight. I just took all the pins out. I got my hairbrush and I brushed a whole lot through on her head. And her face was a picture. She was, she'd gone into shock, I think. And even her dresser, she was like, (gasps) but... If you've got experience at what you do, I just flipped it straight back up, dressed it, ran a comb through, flipped it up, ran the microphone through, glued her down, stuck the pins in, in like three minutes. You pro! It's experience. You've got to know what you're doing and how to handle hair. As I was going out of the door, the dressing room, she got plenty of time. She got five minutes, in fact, before she was due on. Mm. I left the dressing room and I turned round to her and I said, you won't do that again, will you, Patricia? I said it as I left the dressing room. And I bet she felt really told off because I bet she bloody knew she'd been messing with that wig. She just said to me, oh, you've been playing in the knife drawer. <laughs> and I said, yes, well, I've had a very good teacher. <laughs> but she was she was charming after that. She never touched a wig again after that. And she was absolutely fine. She gave me a very nice card little gift at the end of the show but it was a very funny moment I mean obviously I was only ever chorus in the in the theatre but I can tell you it is really tempting as a performer you just do want to mess with them I mean luckily ours were ours were set in the hairstyle in Phantom which they were meant to be in so you couldn't play with them really I used to like taking the pins out so that it would all come down the front and then I'd just do the, the curl back and put it in I mean, my favourite day, my absolute favourite day in the whole nine months I was in Phantom of the Opera, probably happened about three or four times, was when we'd get new wigs and they'd come down and they'd be really fresh on the blocks and I'd be like, ah, this is the best day ever! (laughs) (laughs) It is lovely. It doesn't smell of, like, grease paint and sweat. It doesn't quite smell of the roar of the crowd. Is there anything left that you still would love to do or have you ticked pretty much everything off the list? I'd never say that, you know, I'd done everything I wanted to do in the wig world, no. Mm. I think there's always something new. That's what makes it exciting, really. There's always something new, something coming up, something different. I mean, I had to make a dog for Mary Poppins, the show. That took a bit of doing. Uh, but the dog was wonderful because Bob rang me up and said, I need a dog. He said, can you, because he's going to move this dog. Have you done a dog before? And I said, yes, yes, done a dog before. And then afterwards I put the phone down and I thought, well, I've never done a dog before, but I'll see what I can do. 
make the mechanical bit I had to make all the hair all the and they're all the things you have to think about of you know hair coming around here and if the legs move the arms the sockets you've got to make sure the hair's not going to get caught up in the socket you know like the anatomy of the animatronic yeah because normally it would be a, a Jim Henson studio job you know yes, that kind of thing yeah Bob wanted this glossy, lovely... He's a Yorkshire a Yorkshire Terrier, this dog. Aww. And there were two of them. I had made two. So in the end, we went everywhere with it. We went to Broadway, all sorts of places. I ended up making about six of dogs altogether. So now you really... When somebody says, do you do dogs? You can say, I most certainly do do dogs. <laughs> oh, Angela, I could talk to you all day. I really could. But I know that you've got to be somewhere and I've got to go and do something. But, well, I know exactly what I'm going to do straight after we've finished. I'm going to go and buy My Name Is Not Wigs. That's what I'm going to do. It's been really lovely to meet you and we've had quite a fun time this morning. Oh, it's been wonderful. Honestly, I just love a showbiz story. I love hearing about the theatre. I love the anecdote. For me, you make it all come alive in a way that not even an actor can. So thank you very much for sharing. Well, that's a great compliment, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you, Angela, for joining us on the Big Hairy Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. The Big Hairy Podcast is brought to you by The Beauty Works, an innovative and affordable hair, skin and cosmetics brand, which is dedicated to clean beauty and high performance. All of their products are 90 to 95% natural and vegan wherever possible, using quality, ethically sourced ingredients in advanced formulations for people who care about their health as well as the planet. In keeping with the Beautyworks Clean Beauty Statement, the products contain no harsh chemicals or toxic ingredients, are free from parabens, dyes, petrochemicals and phthalates, and are not tested on animals. Join the Beautyworks revolution and love the skin you live in by visiting thebeautyworks.co.uk or follow them on Instagram at thebeautyworks. That's Beautyworks with an X. Thank you for listening to the Big Hairy Podcast. I will see you in the next episode.